Welcome to the Cornfield Meet, the Transportation Disasters Podcast. A cornfield meet is where two steam trains collide head-on in a field out in the country. We use this term to represent the meeting of transportation with a disaster. Your host in today's episode is Michelle Sargent and Mel B. You may hear some laughter during the conversations in our episodes. However, this is not meant as a form of disrespect to the people who may have been lost or the people this disaster affected. We do this to release some of the darkness of the topics we cover. Please consider this a trigger warning as there could be some graphic details in our episodes. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle and I'm a self-professed disaster historian and amateur radio operator in ACSX. I am Mel. I am also a disaster historian. And in part two of the Edmund Fitzgerald, we will be covering the investigation, litigation, regulation changes, memorial, and any additional commentary. In the area where the Fitzgerald went down, a sister ship joined the search, but so far all that was found was an oil slick, life jackets, and an empty lifeboat. There was no sign of the 29 men aboard. Officials say the freighter was fighting gale winds and 25-foot waves. The Fitzgerald left the Burlington Northern Docks here at Superior, Wisconsin, Sunday afternoon with a cargo of more than 26,000 tons of taconite ore pellets. She was bound for Detroit. The huge freighter was last heard from shortly after 7 o'clock last night when one of its officers radioed a nearby steamer to say the Fitzgerald was taking on water and had lost two hatch covers. Shortly after that, the freighter disappeared. Well, it's purely speculation, but... uh... Uh, with, with a following sea like that, uh, you would consider the possibility of the ship uh, broaching to and possibly capsizing or else just breaking in half uh, and uh, splitting apart. Even though the Coast Guard now considers the Fitzgerald lost, officers continue to plot the area where debris was sighted in a search for possible survivors. Officials, however, say it would be impossible to live more than four hours in the 49-degree waters of Lake Superior. Rebecca Bell, NBC News, Superior, Wisconsin. All right. And I I actually do have a few sources for just the, the memorial part that I covered because okay. I, I, I have the memorial. So I did, I do have some stuff. So I did include some stuff off of Wikipedia and a website called Mental Floss. Mm-hmm. Any audio added, you know it comes from YouTube. Mm. I say it all the time, but I just want to make it clear that that's where it's coming from. <laughs> Okay. And my sources were also Wikipedia. And then I also used Frederick Stonehouse's book, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, a Coast Guard report. And I also referenced Michael Schumacher's book, The Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I also found, actually someone posted this on one of the Edmund Fitzgerald Facebook groups, a paper called A Forensic Investigation of the Breakup and Sinking of the Great Lakes Iron Ore Carrier Edmund Fitzgerald November 10th, 1975, using modern naval architecture tools and techniques by Sean Curie and Ben Fisher. And that came out in November of 2018. I also referenced Why the Edmund Fitzgerald Sank by Timothy J. Thompson. So use a section from the show Mysteries of the Deep, season one, episode six, called Aliens of the Abyss. And when I was reading David G. Brown's book, The White Hurricane, on page 47, I referenced page 47 for an explanation of Lake Superior rogue waves. Let's see, let's go, Roger, if there's no, uh, no peep out of them, that's, uh, that's the thing that really strikes 
The wreck was finally, you mentioned this at the beginning, but the wreck was finally located by a U.S. Navy P-3 Lockheed Orion on November 14th, 1975, and a further side-scan sonar by the U.S. Coast Guard revealed two large objects laying close together on the lake floor. The Coast Guard conducted this side-scan sonar search from November 14th to 16th. The scan showed two large objects lying close to one another in approximately 530 feet of water. The weather did result in in a poor sonar trace, but the U.S. Coast Guard was still able to determine that each piece was roughly 300 feet in length. The U.S. Coast Guard conducted a second side-scan sonar with their contractor, Seward, Inc., from November 22nd to 25th. There was also bad weather during this sonar search. 80 sonar traces were made over a three-day period, and nearly 300 navigational fixes were obtained. Based on the scan, the U.S. Coast Guard determined the solar traces probably located the Fitzgerald, but another search was needed to make a definitive conclusion. The U.S. Navy dived to the wreck from May 12 to 16, 1976, using its unmanned submersible Curve 3. They found the fits in two large pieces in 530 feet or 160 meters of water and 17 miles northwest from Whitefish Point, Michigan, and just north of the international boundary with Canada. The bow stood upright in the mud, about 170 feet or 52 meters from the stern, which lay at a 50 degree angle from the bow. I guess that's why they were saying that they're pretty confident that it plowed into the mud and so because of the way that it was found. Exactly. Oh, that's crazy. Between the two sections was a 200-foot debris field of taconite pellets and wreckage, including hatch covers and hull plating. Both sections are embedded in the mud, and mud covers the spar deck on the stern. The mud appears to be plowed up against both the bow and the stern. The bottom mud is disrupted and in some areas has been pushed into large mounds. The mud also hampered the visibility. The bow is nearly upright at a 15-degree angle, The stern is upside down at a 10 degree angle. Hatch covers are missing from hatches one, two, five, six, seven, and eight. Hatch covers three and four are covered in mud. The access hatch between seven and eight is in place and dogged down. The forward combing of number one hatch is severely damaged. The after combing of the number one and the forward and after combing of number two show less damage. The forward combing of number five is laid down and is damaged. The degree of damage to the combings increases from number one to the separation. The shell plating between the spar and forecastle deck is badly damaged. Throughout the area, the plating is wrinkled and the white paint has chipped away, revealing rust underneath. The forward section of the pilot house is damaged on both the port and starboard sides. All of the visible plating on the upside down stern is intact, and there is separation that is visible around hatch 18. The after superstructure is buried in the mud. The propeller and rudder are visible and undamaged. There is no visible hole in the stern other than at the spot of separation. A dent was found approximately 50 feet from the rudder post. Another inward-facing dent, which appears to be a buckle, was found on the starboard side of the stern at approximately 20 feet from the separation. There is no breach of the hull at either dent. Areas of separation were examined in detail and showed twisted, curving edges consistent with ductile failure. 
there was no straight or flat separations that are associated with brittle fracture. All the hatch combings have clamps attached and a majority of the clamps appear undamaged. So the U.S. Coast Guard report also looked into maintenance. During the 1969-70 winter layup, there was cracking at the keelstone shell connection and vertical stiffeners were added to the keelsons. No further cracking was found until 1973-74 and the cracks were minor and repaired with welding. During the 1969-70 layup, the crew also discovered a fracture in the vertical section of the gunwale bounding angle port side adjacent to hatch 14. The fracture was repaired by rewelding, and there were no further occurrences. None of these problems were considered unusual or serious. I know you had mentioned some of the accidents in the groundings. So there was the September 1969 during the Sioux. April 1970 collision with the SS Hochelega damaged the JKL and M strikes at hatches 18 and 19. In September 1970, this Sioux struck a uh, lock wall, damaged L strike at hatches 18 and 19. In May 1973, this also struck the lock wall and damaged to L strike frames 20 to 45, hatches 2 to 7, and in the main deck and associated stiffeners. In September 1974, the crew inadvertently started lifting the cover from hatch 8 without removing all the clamps. Four clamps, the combing, the hatch cover, and the stiffeners were all damaged. This damage was repaired during the 1974-75 layup. There was, this is another thing, I don't know if you knew this, there was no EPIRB on Fitzgerald because at the time they were not required on Great Lakes vessels. Really? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. <laughs> when the Fitzgerald was originally built, her winter load line was 14 feet 9 and a quarter inches. By September 1973, her winter load line had been reduced to 11 feet 6 inches. This means that the Fitzgerald carried more cargo and rode lower in the water than Judge Safe in 1958. Mm. Minor modifications were made to accommodate the lowered load line. These included adding stiffeners to watertight doors, new porthole covers, windless room chalk covers, additional fence, bigger aft freeing port area, extending heights of outboard tunnel vents, and new mushroom caps for the vent tanks. The 1973 load line regulations also required the creation of a loading manual. However, the regulations, you're going to love this, the regulations required a loading manual, but it didn't specify what should go into the manual. Uh. So Ogilvy Norton's first attempts at creating a loading manual resulted in loading plans which were markedly different from the actual loading practice. As a result, most mates resorted to the loading practices they had been using for years. However, when the standard practices were examined, it was determined that they only required minor modifications to ensure that stresses on the vessel were within acceptable limits. A manual was developed and approved by the Coast Guard in 1973. So the Fitzgerald's loading manual showed information relating to the load totals for each hatch, but no information on intermediate loads or unloading. The manual was prepared for a two-belt loading system, which is usually used to load the Fitzgerald, and not for the chute dock system, which was used on November 9th. It does not contain information on ballasting, deballasting, or fueling, and it does not contain information or calculations of the stress numeral. We've noted that the Lakers are designed differently, but stability requirements for Great Lake freighters are also not the same as for ocean-going vessels. Therefore, the master or the captain must be given sufficient stability information to be able to obtain an accurate guidance on the stability of the vessel. 
Studies have shown that Great Lakes vessels have a very high level of inherent stability due to the density of their cargo, which is carried low in the ship with very little free surface effect from the ballast tanks. Due to this, the Coast Guard determined that no stability tests were needed, and therefore there were no stability figures for the Fitzgerald. The Fitzgerald had 26,116 tons of taconite for the last voyage. Taconite was the most common type of cargo on the Great Lakes. Fitzgerald also received 50,000 pounds of fuel, as well as an additional 50,013 gallons of number six fuel at the same time. The last inspection of the spec took place October 31st, 1975, so right before it sank. The inspections found discrepancies in the number 13, 15, 16, and 21 hatches. The discrepancy at number 13 was that a notch less than one inch in depth in the inboard edge of the spar inner stringer on the port hatch opening approximately three feet after the forward combing. Number 15 had a gouge less than one inch thick in the inboard edge of the spar deck inner stringer on the port side of the hatch opening approximately three feet after the forward combing. And number 16 had an indentation and a crack in the port hatch and girder. The crack ran vertically and was eight to 10 inches in length. Number 21 had a crack approximately one inch in length. It was determined that these discrepancies would be repaired prior to the 1976 season. The inspectors dreamed the damage minor, but the board wasn't so sure. Though there was no way of assessing for sure, the board felt that the hatch's watertight integrity had been compromised in some way. And you hadn't mentioned this, that around 4.30, the Coast Guard noted that the light and radio beacon at Whitefish Point were inoperative. Yeah, I meant, yeah, mm-hmm. I mentioned that. Mm-hmm. It was an unmanned light, radio beacon, and weather station, and they were remote controlled by the Coast Guard at Sault Ste. Marie. Fitzgerald called at 4.39 to inquire if the radio beacon was operating and was told it was not. There were several attempts to, made to restore the navigational aids using the remote control. The light was observed to be operational at 5 p.m., but sometime afterwards, the monitoring equipment again indicated a failure. It was finally determined that the light and beacon were not operating and would not be immediately restored, and the Coast Guard sent a message to that effect at 7.05 p.m. The next morning, the Coast Guard sent a repairman to Whitefish Point, and he found the aids not operating. They were returned to full operation by 9.30 on November 11th. Mm. So the board made the following conclusions. The only information available about the position of the Fitzgerald at the time of her sinking was the weather report sent by the Fitzgerald and the testimony of the captain and watch officers of the Arthur S. Anderson. The position of the Fitzgerald relative to the Anderson cannot be reconstructed. The damage reported was consistent with topside damage flooding through any two ballast tanks or would not have been sufficient to cause the loss, nor would the list alone be enough. As we were talking, we were wondering about that earlier, whether the list right. would have been enough. It was mm-hmm. the combination of everything. Yeah, I'm um, sure, yeah. Like they say, it's never just one thing. Exactly. It's all kinds of things. <laughs> McSorley told the Anderson that he had two pumps going. The Fitzgerald had six pumps, which led to the conclusion that the crew must have felt that this was not serious if they only had two of the six pumps going. Yeah, but they were saying that the pumps turn on automatically, right? Oh, I don't know. I had not actually. Unless this this was a prior thing where they had to be turned on. Yeah. I don't know if maybe they're automatic now and they're turned on automatically when they hit like a certain. Yeah. Like when water hits a certain level, they automatically kick on. Mm -hmm. I wonder if maybe this is something that happened after. Yeah. Improvement? I don't know. It could be. Yeah. The underwater survey showed that mud covered a majority of the wreckage, that the midship section was completely disrupted, and the stern was inverted. 
In the absence of more definite information concerning the nature and extent of the difficulties reported and problems other than those which were reported, and in the absence of any survivors or witnesses, the proximate cause of the loss of the Fitzgerald cannot be determined. The Marine Board, however, found that the most probable cause was loss of buoyancy due to massive flooding in the cargo hull that was likely caused by ineffective hatch closures. Mm -hmm. The board further concluded that the vessel dove into a wall of water and never recovered, breaking up either as it sank or when striking bottom, which is the which is the scenario that Schumacher kind of right. imagined. So they're saying it could have possibly even broken up before it got to the bottom. Yeah. They oh. theorized that sea sweeping the length of the open spar deck had flooded the hold through poorly sealed hatch covers and that the flooding of the hold had begun early in the gale. Choo-choo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're picking it up. <laughs> Figure we let everybody hear it. <laughs> the theory, this theory was bolstered by the time it took for the Fitzgerald to sink. If the ship had lost one or more hatch covers or had hogged and cracked on six fathom shoal, the Fitzgerald would not have lasted as long and would have sank much quicker. Mm. This conclusion is troubling because Captain McSorley was well aware of the weather and should have demanded that every hatch clamp was properly fastened, and this finding implies that may not have happened. More troubling, though, is the assumption that McSorley did demand that each hatch be properly dogged down, and they were. It meant that several of the closures were in such a degraded state as to not be watertight. Another troubling question is how water could actually seep through the watertight closures and would it be enough to actually sink a ship of the size of the Fitzgerald? If so, wouldn't someone have noticed? I would hope you would so. Think, you would hope so. <laughs> Testing showed that even if as little as a third of the openings let in water, it would have meant that the Fitzgerald would lose five and a half to six feet of freeboard. This is consistent with what was reported. The Fitzgerald did not have a sounding tube, so there was no way to determine how much water was in the hold. So the Marine Board also found following contributing factors. Reduction of the winter load line. This reduced the reduced distance between the water line and the deck, known as the freeboard, allowed much more seas to board in heavy weather, which would increase the amount of water flooding into poorly sealed or secured hatches. Damage to hatch covers, combings, and gaskets. This damage usually occurred during cargo handling, and there was no program for in-season repairs. Spar deck work was left for the winter layup. Underwater photos also appeared to show that not all hatch clamps had been properly fastened. Whether all the cargo clamps were properly fastened cannot be determined. The board was of the opinion that if the clamps had been properly fastened, any damage, disruption, or dislocation of the hatch covers would have resulted in damage or distortion of the clamps. The underwater survey showed that only a few of the clamps were damaged. This led to the conclusion that these are the only ones that were properly fastened and that there were too few and too many unfastened or loosely fastened to provide an effective closure of the hatches. Cargo flooding was undetected by the crew. There was no method, as I said, of determining the amount of water in the hold, known as sounding. The board believed that Captain McSorley was unaware of the true situation. He likely attributed the list to recently occurred topside damage when in reality, it was not known if topside damage was responsible for the list. The pumps were probably too late, as by the time he realized he had a problem, he had probably already taken on too much water. Mm. Topside damage could have been caused by an unidentified object. They felt it was most likely a log. This damage could also have been caused by something on deck breaking loose. The topside damage most likely occurred in the bow area and was unseen by the crew in the pilot house. Together with the reported damage, this caused the Fitzgerald to be trimmed down by the bow. 
The downtrim caused water to accumulate in the hold, increasing the downtrim and the rate of flooding. And so the other thing, I don't know if, if you came across this in your reading, apparently Captain McSorley was reporting waves bigger than everybody else was reporting. So one of the things that were reported is that as the Fitzgerald sank lower and lower in the water, the waves in the seas would have appeared bigger. Ew. So it's possible that the waves appeared bigger because he was lower he in the was, water. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Despite the board's conclusion, the damage to the Fitzgerald was such that there was no way to de definitively determine the condition of the hatch covers prior to the sinking. Now, the NTSB also investigated this. They made similar conclusions to the Marine Board as to contributing factors. However, they disagreed with the Coast Guard as to probable cause finding, quote, the probable cause was the sudden massive flooding of the cargo hold due to the collapse of one or more hatch covers. Hmm. So they felt that the hatch covers collapsed rather not that the hatches were ineffectively not properly closed. Right. Wow. Before the hatch covers collapsed, flooding into the ballast tanks and tunnel through non-watertight hatch covers caused a reduction in freeboard and a list. The hydrostatic and hydrodynamic forces imposed on the hatch covers by heavy flooding seas at this point reduced freeboard and with the sudden list caused the hatch covers to collapse. Hmm. They noted that contributing to this accident was the lack of transverse watertight bulkheads in the cargo hold and the reduction of freeboard authorized by the 1969, 1971, and 1973 amendments to the Great Lakes Load Line Regulations. So the key word for the, the NTSB was that all of this was sudden. Right. NTSB stated that between 3.30 p.m. on November 10th and the sinking, the Fitzgerald's decks were awash in green water. The NDSB completed a structural analysis of the hatch covers and concluded that the conditions of loss of freeboard and trim as a result of flooding could have imposed sufficient hydrostatic loads to cause a hatch cover failure and collapse under static loading. So they're thinking is the weight of the water would have caused the hatch covers to collapse. Uh, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Based on the Anderson's reports, the NTSB calculated 25-foot waves and determined that by 7.15 on November 10th, enough water had entered the Fitzgerald to lower her freeboard to zero at the number one or forwardmost hatch. Under these conditions, a 25-foot wave would produce a static head of 12.5 feet of water, sufficient enough to cause a collapse of a hatch. So the hatches were only designed to withstand a four-foot head of water. So this is three times as much. Mm. The quartering seas caused a piling effect in the aft forward deckhouse, which would have further increased the static head of water. Stresses caused by the dynamic force of the boarding seas would have added to the static stresses and hastened the hatch collapse. The NTSB determined that hatch cover failure would have been severe enough to allow rapid massive flooding of the cargo hold. Since there were no watertight bulkheads within the hold, the floating water would have progressed throughout the hold within minutes, causing the vessel to sink bow first to the bottom of the lake. Upon impact with the bottom, the midship portion disintegrated and the stern section rolled over, coming to rest upside down. The NTSB conducted a very thorough analysis and determined that the current hatch covers used on the Fitzgerald would have permitted significant amounts of water to enter the Fitzgerald's cargo hold under the sea conditions encountered on November 10, 1975. They ruled out the vessel breaking in two on the surface. They also concluded that the vessel did not capsize. They considered the grounding theory, but dismissed this due to lack of evidence. They noted that the reconstructed track line took the Fitzgerald three miles north of Six Fathom Shoal, and curve imaging did not show any evidence of bottom damage, though only the stern could be seen. The NDSB also concluded that the Fitzgerald suffered her reported damage prior to reaching the shoal. The NTSB made 25 recommendations, 19 to the Coast Guard, 4 to the American Bureau of Shipping, 2 to the National, to NOAA, 
Many were a repetition of those in the Marine Board report. Over member Hogue of the NTSB dissented to the final conclusion, believing instead that the most probable cause was shoaling, which first generated the list, the loss of two air vents and a fence wire. Secondarily, within three to four hours, massive undetected flooding of the cargo hold resulted in a total loss of buoyancy. The dissent also notes that there is an abundant testimony about the prudence and competence of Captain McSorley. He was considered the best captain of the best ship. Because of his reputation, crew members sought employment on the Fitzgerald. Evidence further indicates that Captain McSorley would not have started a journey into bad weather without ensuring that all hatch covers were secure. Captain Cooper, in a call to his company less than 24 hours after the sinking, stated that he was sure that McSorley went over the Six Fathom Shoal. Captain Cooper always maintained that the Fitzgerald either shoaled on Six Fathom Shoal or hogged in the turbulent waters around Michipitokan Island in Caribou and then lost freeboard until she was overcome by one or more rope waves. Member Hogue placed great cadence on Captain Cooper's testimony. However, one of the other things that Captain Hogue noted was that the Fitzgerald never arrived in port without dry cargo, which also doesn't support the argument that the ship had damaged or non-watertight hatches. The Lake Carriers Association also looked into the sinking, and they completely rejected the Coast Guard's cause for the sinking. They emphasized the list, loss of two ballast tank vents, and the use of the pumps minutes after passing over Six Fathom Shoal. With the pumps operating, there should have been no list from water entering the openings from the loss of the ballast vents. The speed of which the Fitzgerald took on the list can only be explained by the holding of ballast tanks on Six Fathom Shoals. There was no report of hatch damage or of hatch openings. Thing is, though, they may not have been able to see them. Mm. The Lake Carriers Association would have a vested interest in this being a shoaling and not ineffective hatch covers or mm. a maintenance issue. They note that water on the main deck would have resulted in compressive action, meaning that this would have pushed the hatches more tightly onto their gaskets rather than opening them, which is true, but it, it also doesn't account for the NTSB saying it was actually enough to collapse them. Yeah. And if the gasket, if the hatches were in, in, you know, in somewhat of a deteriorating state, it's possible that they would have collapsed from that water too. Right. There was no indication that water was entering the hold from the top side. Had water been entering from the top side cargo hold section, it would have been insufficient to support even one ballast pump. The lake carriers also noted that it was questionable whether water in the cargo hold would have resulted in the list since it would not have been restricted to one side of the vessel. If flooding had started in the forward part of the vessel and forward trim were affected, the suction point located in the after cargo hold would have been elevated and pumping would not have been possible. The Fitzgerald had two pumps going and McSorelli reported they were holding their own. This indicated that the, the water was being pumped and could not have come through the cargo hold. And I noted that the lake carriers italicized this point for emphasis. The damage had to be on the bottom, and since there was no indication of structural failure, had to come from an external force such as shoaling. The vessel filled up from the bottom to the point that it had marginal buoyancy in heavy seas and a large wave or series of waves could have raised the stern and started the bow's dive underwater from which it never recovered. The Lake Carriers Association also noted that the hatch covers could have blown off from compressed air in the cargo compartments as water entered from the side and bottom. And this is a well-known phenomenon experienced in other sinking. The hatch covers could... So they're trying to explain why the hatch covers looked the way they did mm. on the surveys. The hatch covers could also have sprung from the weight of the taconite pellets as the ship dove towards the bottom. Action would have sprung or broken the hatch clamps. The Coast Guard, however, dismissed the shoaling theory because an accurate track of the Fitzgerald's movements couldn't be ascertained from the Anderson's officer's testimony. 
Despite this, the experienced master of the Anderson still noted that the Fitzgerald had passed through six fathom shoals near Caribou Island. Captain Cooper also made, as I noted, a confidential report to his own home office in which he speculated that the Fitzgerald had shoaled. A subsequent hydrological survey showed the shoal a mile further east than Six Fathom Shoal was depicted on navigational charts. This new verified shoal was in the track of the Fitzgerald, as observed by the Anderson, making shoaling even more certain. However, the Marine Board noted that dives on the shoal after the accident did not show evidence of a ship having shoaled. The lake carriers recommended dismissing the changes to the load line regulations. They also contested the watertight compartment regulation, noting that Great Lakes vessels are designed with segregated ballast tanks designed exclusively for water ballast. They provide a double shell over the cargo hold and vertically up to the sides to the weather deck. The typical Great Lakes vessel has 69 ballast tanks on each side. Each tank is divided port to starboard by a watertight compartment by the collision forward bulkhead and watertight bulkhead aft. Finally, an October 1977 inspection of the Arthur B. Homer Fitzgerald sister ship revealed that light could be seen through the gasket decombing interfaces on 45% of the hatches. In some instances, the distance between the hatch and the combings was greater than a half an inch. 15% of the clamps were improperly adjusted. So this does give credence to the Coast Guard theory about improper hatch covers. After the, the Navy and the Coast Guard made their dives, there were several privately funded dives until the Fitzgerald before 1995. But in 1980, John Michael Cousteau, son of famed oceanographer Jacques Cousteau, sent two divers in a submersible on the first man dived at the Fitzgerald. It was a brief dive, and the team made no conclusions, but speculated that the ship broke on the surface and did not sink quickly. The divers observed that the bow section was extremely dented, so something had to have banged against it. They thought this was caused by the bow smashing into the stern in heavy seas. A three-day dive was organized by the Michigan Sea Grant Program from August 22nd to 25th, 1989. The primary objective of this was to record 3D videotape to use in museum education programs and for the use of documentaries. They used a propelled, tethered, free-swimming ROV. Participating in the dive were NOAA, the National Geographic Society, the U.S. Army Court of Engineers, Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The team took five hours of footage, which was used both by the Great Lakes Historical Society and National Geographic. The dive also showed that the door to the pilot house was open. This was not evident on the Coast Guard dives. The door hinges and knob were undamaged, meaning that the door was not blown open in the sinking. This leads to the possibility that at least one or more crew members knew the ship was sinking and made an effort to save himself. Though the footage was taken for documentary purposes, a panel of experts was convened to view the footage. This included naval architects, marine engineers, experienced lake captains, marine historians, and a maritime surveyor. The experts were not asked to argue for or against any particular theory, but rather to relate what they were seeing to existing theories or any potential new theory. They also noted that there was not sufficient evidence to determine the cause of the sinking. The pilot house door is not dogged, but is open, which suggests an attempt to leave. Bow damage is extensive, and the video evidence suggests it was caused by water drag during the plunge and that the ship struck bow first. The overall damage to the bow was not caused by service action. Afterward deflection of deck gear was caused by high drag on the way down, the buckling and compression of bulkheads was caused by the impact of striking bottom. 
The taconite coverage on the bottom is the result of the stern floating for a short period and spilling the cargo on top of the forward section, further verifying that the bow struck first and that the two sections did not sink simultaneously. Which is kind of scary. Could you imagine being in the back of that ship and it's, and it's the back is floating, but you've got no way of getting off of it? It's almost as terrifying as being on a lifeboat when the front of the boat is still coming your way. Or no, this would have been the back of the boat. Yeah. With the front of the boat missing. Yeah, exactly. And the back of the boat's coming at you. Yeah, that, yeah exactly. Yeah, that would be enough to make me shit my pants. <laughs> they also noted that the spar deck and debris field between the bow and the stern were not shot well. Over a three-day period from July 3 to 5, 1994, Canadian explorer Joseph McGuinness led six publicly funded dives to the Fitzgerald. Har Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute provided a ship in their manned sub. Thomas Farquist, executive director of the Great Lake Shipwreck Historical Society, also participated in the dive. McGuinness was also unable to come to a conclusion as to why the vessel sank. Farnquist noted that based on the survey observations, it was virtually impossible that the Fitzgerald broke apart on the surface. So I think at this point, this, that's kind of been determined, that it didn't break apart on the surface, mm -hmm. that it, it sank and then right. the bow sank first and then it kind of pulled itself apart. Structural damage was more extensive than observed previously. Farnquist observed, quote, it sank with incredible force, propelled downward by a monster wave and momentum from its 7,500 horsepower engines and the forward surge of 26,116 tons of taconite ore. Shifting forward, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. He said, I think it drove itself into the bottom with the screw still going and literally exploded. Jesus. Conceivably, the nose of the 725-foot vessel struck bottom while the rear third was above the water surface as it was only 530 feet. Farnquist further noted that while they still don't know why it sank, they now know more about what happened during the sinking. The expedition also discovered that the stern lies roughly parallel to the bow. The Coast Guard sketches had placed the two sections at a greater angle. The expedition also noted extensive hull separation from the spar deck forward. The pilot house telegraph was observed to be set full ahead and not checked down, which gives credence to the theory that the Fitzgerald was going full ahead when she plunged. So she hadn't stopped or anything. She was still moving ahead when she plunged. Mm. The expedition also noted the 90-degree bend in the stem post, which indicates the enormous forces of the bottom impact. No evidence of the crew was found. From July 25 to 27, 1994, sport diver Fred Shannon organized a privately funded dive using Delta Oceanographic Submersible. Shannon was also an avid Fitzgerald researcher and thought his dive would shed light on what happened. He also intended to use the footage for a documentary and a book. He made seven dives and took more than 32 hours of video as well as nearly 800 still photos. He also recorded the longest dive to the Fitzgerald at 211 minutes. Wow. This dive also discovered the remains of a crew member wearing a life jacket. The appearance of a crew member wearing a life jacket appears to indicate that at least one crew member was aware of the possibility of sinking. The crew member was found lying on the bottom in the vicinity of the bow. After the body was discovered, the appropriate Canadian authorities were notified. The chief coroner for Ontario considered the area to be a natural grave site and noted there was no practical way to retrieve the remains. The discovery of the body upset the descendants of the crewmen and after 20 years brought up painful memories of the disaster. Private citizens and relatives began to express concern that the various expeditions were exploiting the wreck. The image of the body has never been released. Do they know who it was? I don't know if they do. If they do, it's never been never been released. 
yeah, none of them disclosed. Mm-hmm. On his final dive, Shannon left a plaque inscribed with the crew members' names, the name of Captain Jesse Cooper of the Anderson, who was then deceased, and names of the expedition participants. Shannon concluded the Fitzgerald did not dive to the bottom in one piece with the propeller driving it down, which is what Farnquist thought. It did not explode during the wrecking process, and he says it broke on the surface. And he also noted that it may not be in Canadian waters. Shannon noted that his research indicated that the Fitzgerald was overused and hadn't been up to par condition in over a year. All of Shannon's conclusions were a significant departure from the conventional theory. In 1995, McGinnis led another series of dives to salvage the Fitzgerald's bell. The bell recovery provided closure for the families and the push for Canadian authorities to close the wreck to further exploration. And Stonehouse, in his book, feels that there is no reason to continue diving the Fitzgerald as the wreck is not likely to reveal why she sank, which we talked about at the beginning of the first episode. Mm-hmm. Really, there's nothing else to learn from the wreck. Right. The video already taken shows the portion of the ship that could show a tear is buried in mud, which would make it impossible to find or identify a tear. However, he does leave open the possibility that at some point in the future, if technology advanced so divers could get to the Fitzgerald, that they might find something. And then, so now I'm going to get into some of the theories for the sinking. So we have waves and weather. In 2005, NOAA and the National Weather Service ran a computer simulation of the weather and wave activity on the lake from November 9th, 1975 until the early morning of November 11th, 1975. They noted two separate areas of high winds at 4 p.m. on November 10th in excess of 43 knots or 80 kilometers per hour, 49 miles per hour, and the other in excess of 40 knots. Oh, I guess we're having a storm. Or 74 kilometers per hour (laughs) or 46 miles per hour. The Fitz was heading in a southeast direction. The weather simulation showed that the southeast part of the lake had the highest winds. Average waves increased to 19 feet or 5.8 meters by 7 p.m. on November 11th. And winds exceeded 50 miles per hour, 43 knots, 80 kilometers per hour on that section of the lake. The Fitz sank at the eastern area of high wind. In this spot, a long fetch, or the distance the wind blows the water, produced waves averaging over 23 feet, 7 meters, by 7 p.m., and 25 feet, or 7.6 meters, at 8 p.m. The simulation also showed that one out of 100 waves reached 36 feet, or 11 meters, and one out of 1,000 reached 46 feet, or 14 meters. The southeast direction of the waves also likely caused the Fitzgerald to roll heavily in the waves. At the time of the sinking, the Anderson reported northwest winds of 57 miles per hour, 50 knots, or 92 kilometers per hour, which matched the simulation analysis. Analysis also showed maximum sustained winds of 70 miles per hour, which is just under hurricane strength, 61 knots, or 110 kilometers per hour, which gusts of 86 miles per hour, which would be hurricane strength, Mm -hmm. 75 knots, or 138 kilometers per hour. The road wave theory, also known as three sisters waves, they are reported in the vicinity of the Fitzgerald at the time she sank. Captain Cooper reported that the Anderson was hit by two 30 to 35 foot seas at 6.30 p.m. The waves buried the aft cabins and damaged one of the lifeboats. The second 35 foot wave came over the bridge. Cooper also said these waves would have struck the Fitzgerald at the time of her sinking. So they would have hit the Fitzgerald and then, or the Anderson, then 10 minutes later would have hit the Fitzgerald. Right. The rogue wave hypothesis of the sinking posits that the rogue waves combined with the list and lower speed allowed water to remain on the Fitz's deck for longer than usual, which effectively pushed her under. This hypothesis was simulated in a 2010 episode of Dive Detectives. 
it showed that one rogue wave would almost completely submerge the bow or stern temporarily. In a 1977 interview, Frederick Stonehouse felt that there was no evidence for the Three Sisters theory. He didn't feel that theory was valid because the Anderson was just as laden as the Fitzgerald and should have been just as vulnerable. Stonehouse also mentions the William Clay Ford, which was unbalanced and would have taken more stress than a laden ship, which would have made her easy prey to the Three Sisters. Of course, none of those two had the damage that Fitzgerald had either. So, right. In a 1986 speech, Captain Cooper theorized that water piled up on board the Fitzgerald and that two or three different waves piling up against the fore cabin tipped the Fitzgerald forward. This is the recent analysis from 2018. This noted that the number one and two cargo hatch covers located directly behind the forward house are punched down inside the hold. The sun visor on top of the pilot house is mangled and bent forward. The radar antennae on top of the forward house is broken. This is all consistent with a large volume of wind blowing green water crashing down on it. This report also theorized that given the conditions, the radar antennae and much of the superstructure could have been encased in ice. Ice would provide an additional area for the green water to act on. It also would have made the ship heavier, Mm -hmm. which I think is also actually interesting because none of the theories do talk about ice. And I actually was thinking about this a little bit more because... I was watching an episode of Disasters at Sea, and they talked about an Alaskan ship that just suddenly listed, keeled over and sank, and it was right. covered in ice. Right. And the ice would have added extra weight. So what if it was also the weight of the ice that made a push Fitzgerald down even further into the water? Well, I know that the, I, from my understanding, the water was like around 51 degrees. Mm-hmm. So the water wasn't near freezing. Obviously, the air was and... The surface right. probably was. Right. Um, so it, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to tell if that much water was going over the ship. Mm-hmm. Would it have been warm enough, you know, to yeah. keep the ship from, from piling yeah. on the ice? Or would have it not, you know, like, would have it not yeah. mattered because the winds were so high and it was so cold right. and the surface was right. so cold? Well, would that not have mattered? And part of me is now thinking, too, that if the Anderson had come into port covered in ice captain cooper may have said something about it right like you know we were covered in ice so it's likely the fitzgerald probably was too right so new hydrodynamic research also supports this rogue wave theory so rogue waves as we've said have happened on the great lake and the great lakes can produce large and sudden waves and what they do is they bounce off the shoreline and lake superior is actually legendary for the three sisters like a tub yeah, it's like a tub. And it's because the Lake Superior has a rocky coastline, which means the waves do not spend their energy when hitting shore like they would on a sandy shoreline. Instead, they're reflected back into the lake, mm-hmm. which means they're reflected back and they just get bigger and it's bigger. Like the side of a tub. Yep. Exactly. During a storm, the troughs and peaks of a wave become additive, meaning that when the reflected energy of a 20-foot wave is synchronized with a 30-foot open lake wave, the result is a 50-foot tall wave from trough crest. That's crazy. Weather conditions were converted into an hour-by-hour modeling to recreate the wave heights for every hour of the ship's crossing. The model showed 25 to 30-foot waves at the time the Fitzgerald sank. And that's, that tracks what Captain Cooper reported, too, where his ship, 10 minutes before the Fitzgerald sank, was hit by waves of that height. Yep. The distance between the waves was also growing. Waves' crests were becoming hundreds of feet apart. This means that each end of the ship could have been on a crest of a wave, which means there would have been nothing in the middle to hold the ship. Yeah. The weight of the cargo then could have split the ship. And these waves would have been also would have been 
that are also unusually high, but unusually long. Right, exactly. But they're convinced that the ship did not break up above water. Is that correct? Well, you know, I'm wondering now if maybe that's in question again. I mean, hmm. it broke. Yeah, it for broke sure. Quickly. I think it's one. Well, I, I don't know that they made any definite conclusions. I mean, I got this, if I remember correctly, I got this from the television show that I mentioned. Okay. And I think they're thinking it's one of the theories that maybe if it was on on two sides it would have just hogged in the middle yeah but i don't know i i hadn't looked to see if the you know if the structural damage would have supported that breaking apart yeah and i don't, I don't know if like people know exactly like if they haven't looked the picture up of the fitzgerald exactly right. what it looks like but right. if you can imagine it's it's shallow like it's mm -hmm. not it doesn't look like it probably is but in the picture it doesn't look like it's really really high off the water's edge right and then on each end the bow and the the stern there's like the tower mm -hmm. um, and then at the other end is the engine with you know the the tower right. in the back the um stack right. in the back and but it goes up too so yeah. each end kind of goes higher above the water uh -huh. including the edges of the ship go higher uh -huh. above the water so not that that is gonna stop rogue waves or high waves from even going up or over the ship you know at the front or end uh -huh. each end does sit much higher than the middle of the ship which is considerably long um, which is where the cargo is it's uh -huh. underneath you know looking at that if if each end is up like that, where each end of the higher ends of the ship is up and you have the heavy weight of the the iron, you know, in the middle, mm -hmm. it's possible if it did hit, you know, the in you know, rode on the tops of waves that it would hog, like you said, right, right, right. in the middle from just a simple weight. That's iron is heavy. Yeah. You know? And there was twenty six thousand pounds of it. Yeah. And and just imagine picking up a just an anvil trying to pick mm -hmm. up a, even a small anvil is heavy mm -hmm. and that's iron that that is heavy shit right so the next theory is the official marine board conclusion which is cargo hold flooding and the flaw with this argument is that the water in the cargo hold would not have caused the reported list but water in the ballast tanks would have however the ballast tank pump was running so the engineers were aware of part of the ballast flooding mm -hmm. and so then we also have the shoaling hypothesis this is what Captain Cooper believed. It's also the, what the Lake Carrier Association believed. This hypothesis was further supported when a Canadian hydrographic survey conducted in 1976 showed that an unknown shoal ran a mile further east of Six Fathom than was previously known on the Canadian charts at the time. And officers from the Anderson observed the Fitch sail through this area, which is why Captain Cooper believed that he shoaled. Other evidence in support of this theory is Captain McSorley reporting a fence rail down, which could only occur if the ship hogged during shoaling. Hmm. That's why I said early, early in the last episode that it had to have been the fence rail down only would have come from structural damage. Hmm. And then, as I noted, that divers searched Six Fathom Shoal after the wreck, and they found no evidence of a recent collision or grounding. In his book, Stonehouse also notes that Shannon's 1994 photograph of the top overturned stern showed no evidence to indicate that the ship had struck a shoal. Now, we don't have any pictures of the bow, but the thinking is that the stern would have more likely, the stern would have ridden lower, and if it was going to strike the shoal, it more likely would have struck on the stern end mm -hmm. than the bow end. 
Paul, Paul Hainet, a retired professor of mechanical engineering at Michigan Technological University, hypothesized that the fits grounded on a completely different shoal. His theory is that the fits grounded at 9.30 a.m. on November 10th on Superior Shoal. Superior Shoal is an underwater mountain in the middle of Lake Superior. However, it was charted in 1929, so it was known to mariners on Lake Superior. Heine hypothesized that a sesh, or a standing wave, caused the lake to rise three feet over the Sulak Gate and contributed to the Fitzgerald shoaling 200 feet or 61 meters of her hull on Superior Shoal, which caused a puncture in the hull at midship. The wave action then continued to damage the hull until the middle third of the ship dropped out, leaving it only held together by the center deck. The center acted as an anchor and caused the Fitzgerald to come to a full stop, causing everything to go forward. This theory says that the ship broke on the surface within seconds, compressed air blew a hole in the starboard bow, which sank 18 degrees off course. The stern kept going forward with the engine still running, rolled the port, and landed bottom up. The problem is that there's no hard evidence that the Fitzgerald hit the shoal, this shoal or any other. None of the underwater survey showed any evidence of gouging or scraping damage to the rudder or propeller or any hull damage. There was also no evidence of any grounding on the shoal itself. The 2000, and this is, this is what I thought was interesting. I never heard this before. The 2018 analysis talks about a more precise hydrographic survey of the area showing that six fathom shoal does not actually exist, but was an error on earlier charts. Of course, they would have had no, no way of knowing that. Right. They also mentioned that the Coast Guard report and associated documents prove that there is no shoal water within three miles of the Fitzgerald's track and no damage due to grounding. So another hypothesis is structural failure. This Hypothesis is that this Fitzgerald structure was already weakened, which combined with modifications of the winter load line made it possible for large waves to cause a stress fracture. This theory is based on regular large storm waves and not on row waves. The USCG and NTSB both investigated structural failure. They both concluded that the fits separated when she hit the lake bottom. This theory was based on the proximity of the bow to the stern, which indicated that the ship sank in one piece and broke either when it hit the bottom or as it sank. Other authors have contended that the Fitz broke on the surface similar to both the Bradley and the Morrell. In his book, Why the Fitzgerald Sank, Timothy Thompson posits that the construction of the Fitzgerald combined with overloading during her lifetime and poor maintenance combined with ineffective hatch closures and shoaling on six fathom caused the shoal. So he basically took all of the theories and just threw them in. Right. <laughs> he cites the recently rediscovered evidence that the Fitzgerald had a loose keel and she had been experiencing cracking throughout the 1970s. He also notes the suspicious decommissioning of the Fitzgerald's sister ship, the Arthur B. Homer, after the Fitzgerald's sinking, suggesting that she was experiencing the same cracking issues. And it is true that the Homer was inspected and decommissioned shortly after the Fitzgerald. And the F Homer was also a young ship. It was built around the same time as the Fitzgerald. Hmm. Stonehouse contends that the 1989 ROV survey that the amount of taconite coverage showed that the stern floated on the surface for a short time and spilled taconite into the forward section. The 1994 Shannon survey found the bow and the stern were 255 feet, 78 meters apart, leading Shannon to contend that the fits broke on the surface. Shannon felt that if the ship broke on the bottom, or the two pieces would be much closer together. The stress fracture theory is further supported by a former crewman of the Fitz, second mate Richard Orgel, who was on the Fitz in 1972 and 73. He testified that, quote, the ship had a tendency to bend and spring during storms like a diving board after somebody has jumped off, end quote. Oh, fun. Yeah. 
<laughs> or Jell was also quoted as saying that the loss was caused by hull failure, pure and simple. I detected undue stress in the side funnels by examining the white enamel paint, which will crack and splinter when submitted to severe stress, end quote. Another crewman, George Red Berkner, who was the Fitzgerald steward for 10 seasons, and the winter shipkeeper testified in a deposition that a, quote, loose keel contributed to the ship's loss. He further testified that the keel and sister kelsons were only tack welded and that he observed many broken welds. Bergner did not testify before the Marine Board. Bethlehem Steel owned the Fitzgerald sister ship, SS Arthur B. Homer. Bethlehem Steel spent considerable expense to lengthen her, only to permanently layer up five years later. This raised further questions as to whether there were structural issues with both ships. Both ships were built in the same shipyard with welded joints instead of riveted joints. Riveted joints allow a ship to flex in heavy seas while welded joints are more likely to break. Hmm. Repairs to the Fitzgerald's hull were delayed in 1975 due to plans to lengthen her during the upcoming winter layup. The Arthur B. Homer was lengthened to 825 feet and placed back in service in December 1975. In 1978, Bethlehem Steel denied permission for the chairman of the NTSB to travel on the Homer, and the Homer was permanently laid up in 1980 and scrapped in 1987. Hmm. So again, it was a fairly new ship. Right. Naval architect Raymond Ramsey, who worked on the design team for the Fitzgerald's hull, reviewed the increased load lines, maintenance history, and history of longship failure, and concluded that the Fitzgerald was not seaworthy on November 10th, 1975. Noted the Fitzgerald's design was developed without the benefit of research, development, testing, and evaluation principles, and computer light analytical technology was not available when she was built. The all-welded method we used for the first time on the Fitzgerald. So the way she was built was was a new hmm. way of design. Right. Increasing the hull length to 729 feet or 222 meters resulted in a length to depth slenderness ratio, which is the ratio of the length of the ship to the depth of her structure that caused excessive bending and springing of the hull and that the hull should have been structurally reinforced to cope with the increased length. In his 1977 interview, Stonehouse also addressed the structural failure, noting historical precedent from the Bradley and Morrell, but Stonehouse also notes correctly that these structural failures were due to the steel used at the time, and also notes that neither the Lake Couriers nor the Coast Guard felt the Fitzgerald broke due to stress. Experts who examined the underwater photos and video dismissed the idea of a surface breakup, finding no evidence to support this claim. So I guess that puts that down. The 2018 paper poses four different breakup and sinking scenarios. First is intact until the bow hit the bottom. The sudden dive and subsequent impact with the bottom would have been violent enough to cause the hull girder collapse. But there would also have been collision damage to the bow and the broken middle would have caused telescoping type of damage. Ooh. It would have been unlikely that the stern would have completely detached and sever itself from the crushed bow and midsection. That the propeller still turning is one of the least credible assertions made. Propeller's thrust would have been minimal, and this would have resulted in crushing or telescoping damage. They also, the other three was a brooch and capsize followed by breakup and sinking. This cannot be completely ruled out, but evidence does not support this as a likely failure. Broaching is not a common type of problem with these ships, and there was no reports of steering trouble by either the Fitzgerald or the Anderson. Breakup on the surface midship section first. If the Fitzgerald broke due to hatch covers and midships getting blown in and or the hull girder breaking, the condition of the two forwardmost hatch covers is unexplained. As, as in the two forwardmost hatch covers are broke, collapsed in. Right. 
breakup on the surface, failure of first and second hatch covers. This is based on a failure cascade that proceeds as follows. Some object, likely a floating log, is carried aboard on the starboard side of the ship by a boarding wave that breaks the lifeline wire and smashes the two vents. The two ballast tanks begin to flood. This flooding increases the mass forward such that a list begins and slowly increases. This increased forward mass causes the midsection and stern to respond more actively than the bow-to-wave action. The list causes boarding waves to sequentially break windows on the back of the forward house, allowing water into the lower accommodation spaces and increasing the forward flooding. These waves break against the house and cause huge masses of green water to thunder down on the pilot house and the bow. The large masses of solid green water breaks the radar antennae and bends the sun visor and the bow sheet bulwark down and forwards. A wave riding up the lowered freeboard's starboard side reflects off the forward house and blows in the forward two hatch covers and exacerbates existing flooding. The mass of the forward part of the ship drops into a trough behind the damaging wave as the next crest lifts the center of the ship in an extreme hogging and sagging load condition which causes the failure of the hull girder amidships. The next boarding wave from the starboard pushes the center of the ship to port more than the heavy bow or stern. The bow begins to accelerate downwards as the partially fractured hull girder continues to tear away from the stern. The starboard side of the bow section tears away at last, producing the inward bend on the after starboard edge of the bow section. This provides a powerful wrenching motion to the starboard side of the stern that pulls it over on its starboard side in the course of it flooding and capsizing. The paper notes that this failure mode is the only explanation put forward that is consistent with all of the available evidence. Hmm. And finally, we have topside damage. The U.S. Coast Guard cited topside damage as a reasonable alternative reason for the sinking. They surmised that the damage to the fence rail and fence was possibly caused by heavy floating objects such as a log. Historian and mariner Mark Thompson believes that something broke loose on deck. He theorized that the loss of the vents resulted in flooding of two ballast tanks or a ballast tank and walking tunnel that caused the list. He further surmised that the damage was more extensive than McSorley could detect in the pilot house. Thompson concluded that the topside damage occurred around 3.30 p.m. on November 10th and that this combined with the heavy seas was the most obvious explanation for the sinking. Sonhouse in 1977 also agreed with the Coast Guard that the crew may have noticed some topside damage, but that it was much worse than they realized or could see. And a lost vent on topside means that about 1,900 gallons of water per minute would enter in the crew tunnels. This is free water and has the potential to be very damaging. Stonehouse posits four theories. One, the Fitzgerald stayed intact until it hit bottom. Two, the Fitzgerald broke, broaches and capsizes on the surface and sinks in pieces. Three, the Fitzgerald breaks on the surface midships first. And four, Fitzgerald breaks on the surface, including failure of the number two forward hatches. And as I said above, number four was considered to be the most likely and that accounted for all the known facts and wreckage conditions. So some of the other possible contributing factors for the sinking were weather forecasting, the NTSB concluded that the National Weather Service failed to accurately predict wave heights on November 10th, inaccurate navigational charts. The charts that the Fitzgerald were using for Six Fathom Shoal were based on surveys from 1916 and 1919. Jesus. And the NTSB found that at the time of the Fitzgerald sinking, the lake survey chart was not detailed enough to indicate that Six Fathom Shoal was a hazard in navigation. Lack of watertight bulkheads. Uh, Mark Thomas stated that if the Fitzgerald's cargo bays had watertight bulkheads, she would have made Whitefish Bay. 
Stonehouse also held to this theory stating, quote, the Great Lakes Ore Carrier is the most commercially efficient vessel in the shipping trade today, but it's nothing but a motorized barge. It's the unsafest commercial vessel afloat. It has virtually no watertight integrity. So theoretically, a one-inch puncture in the cargo hold will sink it. Wow. Stonehouse called on ship designers and builders to design lake carriers more like ships rather than motorized super barges. <laughs> After the sinking, of course, this always comes up, unfortunately, Great Lake shipping companies were accused of valuing cargo payloads more than human life. The NTSB also concluded that the Great Lakes freighter should be constructed with watertight bulkheads in the cargo holds. The Coast Guard proposed rules for watertight bulkheads on cargo ships after the sinking of the Morale in 1966 and did so again after the Fitzgerald. However, the Lake Carroll Carriers Association was able to forestall watertight bulkhead subdivision regulations, arguing it would cause economic hardship for vessel operators. Most Great Lakes vessels still operating on the lakes do not have flooding prevention in the entire cargo area. Oh, wow. Another contributing factor was a lack of instrumentation. A fathometer was not required and the Fitzgerald did not have one. A hand line was the only method the Fitzgerald had to take depth soundings. The NTSB concluded that a fathometer would have provided the Fitzgerald additional navigational data and made her less dependent on the Anderson. The Fitzgerald also had no way to measure the amount of water in the hold. The Marine Board noted that the flooding could not have been assessed until water reached the top of the taconite, which meant basically the entire thing would have been filled with water by then. Right. The NTSB concluded that it would have been impossible to pump water from the hold when it was filled with bulk cargo, which makes sense. The Marine Board also noted that because the Fitzgerald lacked a draft reading system, the crew had no way to determine whether she had lost freeboard. Another contributing factor was increased load lines and reduced freeboard. The U.S. Coast Guard increased the Fitzgerald's load line in 1969, 1971, and 1973 to allow 3 feet 3.25 inches or 997 millimeters less minimum free than the Fitzgerald was originally designed for. With these reductions, the Fitzgerald's deck was only 11.6 feet or 3.5 meters above the water when she was facing 35 foot or 11 meter waves during the storm. Captain Paquette of the Wilford Sykes noted that this change allowed loading to 4,000 tons more than the Fitzgerald was designed to carry. The concerns with the Fitzgerald's keel welding problem also surfaced during the time that the U.S. Coast Guard started increasing the load lines. Noted here that the increase and reduction in freeboard decreased the ship's critical reserve buoyancy. Prior to the load line increase, the Fitzgerald was a good riding ship. Afterwards, she was sluggish with slower recovery and response times. McSorley said he did not like the action of the ship, describing it as a wiggling thing that scared him. <laughs> and then maintenance. The NTSB noted that the Fitzgerald's prior groundings could have caused undetected damage that led to major structural failure during the storm. Great Lakes vessels were only dry docked for inspection every five years. There were also allegations that when compared to the Fitzgerald's prior captain, McSorley did not keep up with routine maintenance and did not confront the mates when doing required work. August B. Herbold, Jr., president of the American Society for Testing and Materials, examined photographs of the Fitzgerald's welds and stated the hull was just being held together with patching plates. Questions were asked as to why the Coast Guard did not discover and take corrective action during its pre-November 1975 inspection, given that the Fitzgerald's hatch combings, gaskets, and clamps were poorly maintained. And I, I made an editorial comment in here that the Marine Electric sank in 1983, which is only seven years after the Fitzgerald. Uh, it had some of the same maintenance issues that appeared on the Fitzgerald. The Marine Electric investigation showed that the U.S. Coast Guard overlooked the maintenance issues in the name of economics. 
And then I asked, is it really a stretch to then conclude the same attitude in 1975? Right. Then we also have complacency. McSorley reported that he had never seen bigger seas in his life. Captain Paquet said, I'll tell anyone that it was a monster sea washing solid water over the deck of every vessel out there. The U.S. Coast Guard did not broadcast that all ships should seek safe anchorage until after 3.35 p.m. on November 10th, many hours after the weather was upgraded from a gale to a storm and after many captains had already decided on their routes across the lake. McSorley was known as a heavy weather captain who very seldom stopped for weather. Captain Packett was of the opinion that negligence caused the Fitzgerald to sink, stating, In my opinion, all the subsequent events arose because McSorley kept pushing that ship and didn't have enough training in weather forecasting to use common sense and pick a route out of the worst of the wind and seas. Packett was the first to reach a port after the November 10th storm and also took a different route due to the weather. He was not asked to testify during either of the USCG or NTSB investigations. The NTSB noted that vessels could normally avoid severe storms and called for a limiting sea state applicable to all Great Lakes ships. This would restrict the operation of vessels and seas above the limiting value. And this was based on the concern that shipping companies pressured captains to deliver cargo as quickly and cheaply as possible regardless of the weather. At the time of the sinking, there was no regulation to control vessel movement in bad weather, despite the historical record showing that hundreds of Great Lakes vessels had been lost in storms. The U.S. Coast Guard took the position that only the captain could decide when it was safe to sail. The U.S. CG Marine Board issued the following conclusion. The nature of Great Lakes shipping, with short voyages, much of the time in very protected waters, frequently with the same routine from trip to trip, leads to complacency and an overly optimistic attitude concerning the extreme weather conditions that can and do exist. The Marine Board feels that this attitude reflects itself at times in deferral of maintenance and repairs and failure to prepare properly for heavy weather, and then the conviction that since refuges are near, safety is possible by running for it. While it is true that sailing conditions are good during the summer season, changes can occur abruptly with severe storms and extreme weather and sea conditions arising rapidly. This tragic accident points out the need for all persons involved in Great Lake shipping to foster increased awareness of the hazards which exist. Mark Thompson countered that the Coast Guard laid bare its own complacency by blaming the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald on industry-wide complacency since it had inspected the Edmund Fitzgerald just two weeks before she sank. The sinking also showed the lack of U.S. Coast Guard rescue capability on Lake Superior. Budget cuts had limited the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard rescue ships were unlikely to reach the scene of an incident on Lake Superior within 6 to 12 hours. So as far as litigation goes... Two widows of the crew filed a 1.5 million lawsuits against Northwestern Mutual, the Fitzgerald's owners, and Ogilvy Norton, the operator, and an additional 2.1 million lawsuit was later filed. Ogilvy Norton filed a petition to seek to limit their liability to $817,920. Ogilvy Norton paid compensation to surviving family 12 months in advance of the official findings of probable cause and unconditional of confidentiality agreements. Robert Henning reasoned that the U.S. Coast Guard's conclusions were benign in placing blame on neither the company or the captain and saved Ogilvy Norton from very expensive lawsuits by families of the lost crew. Regulation changes. The U.S. Coast Guard investigation resulted in 15 recommendations regarding load lines, weather tight integrity, search and rescue, life-saving equipment, crew training, loading manuals, and providing information to masters of Great Lakes vessels. So they recommended rescinding the federal load line regulations and changes in minimum freeboard brought about by the 69, 71, and 73 changes, create a means of detecting and removing flood water from the cargo hold, and for watertight subdivisions of the cargo hold, 
owners or, or carriers undertaking a continuous program of repair to ensure that all closures for openings above the freeboard deck are watertight. A lot of these recommendations sound somewhat very similar, don't mm-hmm. they, to all, a lot of them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, how many times do they need to give the same recommendations for everybody to get through the thick heavies to be done? I know. The Code of Federal Regulations be amended to require closing and securing of hatches when underway in open water and closing of vent caps when underway in loaded conditions. There should be a visual inspection made of hatch covers and vent caps. The inspection should be made and logged by a licensed officer prior to sailing. The Coast Guard created a program to evaluate hatch closures used on Great Lakes or carriers with a view to require a more effective means of closure of the deck fittings. Owners and maritime unions improve the level of training and the use of life-saving equipment on the ship and in other emergency procedures to include training on the use of inflatable life rafts. Regulations be amended to require crew training in the use, launching, and inflation of life rafts. The Coast Guard Institute a continuing program of inspection and drills for Great Lakes vessels prior to each severe weather season. The program would consist of inspection to verify that the crew had been trained in the use of life-saving equipment, drills conducted with the crew, physical inspection of the spar deck and all critical structural and non-structural members exposed to damage, cargo loading and offloading, including but not limited to hatch combings, hatch covers, vent covers, tank tops, slide slopes, hatch and girders, arches, spar deck stringers, and spar deck plating, and witness emergency drills. The Coast Guard take positive steps to ensure that masters of Great Lakes vessels are provided with information as required by regulation concerning loading and ballasting of Great Lakes vessels and that the information provided include normal load and ballasted conditions as well as the details of the sequence of loading, unloading, ballasting, deballasting, and all the intermediate stages and information on the effect of the vessel of accident flooding from other sources. The Coast Guard completes studies underway concerning primary life-saving equipment, its launching and disembarkation from stricken vessels, and those measures be implemented promptly. The Coast Guard schedule maintenance for buoy tenders and icebreakers located in the Great Lakes so as to maximize surface search and rescue capability during the winter season. Amend regulations to rec- require EPIRBs on all Great Lakes vessels during the severe weather season. Coast Guard promulgate regulations requiring vessels operating on the Great Lakes during the severe weather season to have enough survival suits for each person that will protect the wearers from hypothermia. Modify the navigation charts to show the area north of Caribou Island and widely distribute this modification to mariners. The Coast Guard foster and support programs dedicated to increasing awareness of the hazards faced by vessels in Great Lakes service, particularly during the severe weather season. So, as I said, the NTSB made 19 recommendations for the USG, four for the American Bureau of Shipping, and two for NOAA. Mm-hmm. The following were the only ones put in place. All vessels of 1,600 gross registered tons or over must use depth finders. Since 1980, survival suits have been required in each crew member's quarters and at their customary workstation with strobe lights affixed to the life jackets and survival suits. A Lauren C position system for navigation was implemented in 1980 and later replaced by GPS in the 1990s. EPIRBs are installed on Great Lakes vessels for immediate and accurate location in the event of a disaster. Good. Navigational charts for Northeast Lake Superior were improved for accuracy and greater detail. Good. NOAA revised its method for predicting wave heights. Yeah. USCG rescinded the 1973 load line regulation amendment that permitted reduced freeboard loading. And the U.S. Coast Guard began the annual Green November inspection program recommended by the NTSB. Oh, so that was a lot, and I ran through it all very quickly, but yeah. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's a lot. 
For the maritime community, it was a deadly shock. It was absolutely devastating. This was something that, that they could not believe could have happened, especially under the circumstances. But later, as everybody began to understand the enormity of, of, of the disaster, then I think you saw the general public also become very, very aware of the situation. So at that point, it becomes this huge news story for everybody. For the families of the 29 men on the Edmund Fitzgerald, the wreck is not a fascinating Great Lakes legend. It's a moment of life-changing pain. When I turned TV on, and the first thing I saw was a picture of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and they were announcing that it had sank, and they were looking for survivors. And I just burst out screaming, crying. She disappeared. And I think that's the thing that really mystified everybody the most, that a ship that was 729 feet long that had battled these storms for years that could disappear that quickly. And no radio distress signal, anything. Only the, the guys and God above know what happened. There are plenty of theories about what sent the Edmund Fitzgerald to the bottom of Lake Superior, and none of them matter much 40 years later. What matters is the enduring memory of the lives lost when the ship went down. I think it's more important just to remember that that was a crew of 29 men uh, that were going about their jobs and in a lot of cases uh, they were looking forward to getting home. Where the Fitzgerald is down I imagine that there's a thought passes every ship's captain when he's passing over the area up there and you think well geez, here's one of our ships, one of our better ships in the lakes. You'd, you'd, they'll be, always be remembered to a certain extent. I don't think you should make martyrs out of them because they're not martyrs. They're, they were doing a job and they got hurt. I know they, they knew they had risks of, of dying. I know my dad did because I had spoke to him about it, but they understood it and that was their way of life. The Edmund Fitzgerald sits under 535 feet of water, a gravesite that begs to remain undisturbed. 20 years after the wreck, divers removed the ship's bell, the soul of the vessel, to create a memorial at Whitefish Point that everyone could visit. Over time, the Edmund Fitzgerald has become not a story of a, of a ship and a crew lost in a horrific Great Lakes storm, but really the story of a ship and a crew lost in storms everywhere. It has become, in effect, America's story of shipwreck, America's story of, of maritime industry and how powerful nature can be. Remembering those crew members and honoring their memory and uh, doing the same thing for all of these other individuals who went down on shipwrecks through the centuries. That's probably one of the most important things we can do. That bell was probably ringing when it went down and when they brought it up and the minute it hit the surface it rang again and it was like I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still ringing for the guys. As long as we keep remembering the Fitzgerald like we're doing now, 40 years later 50 years later, 100 years later, the memory and the crew and the ship live on. You know, I don't know how else to say it. You know, as long as we remember, they're still alive out there. They're still out there sailing. All right, so as far as the memorials, 
There was a bell retrieval that in the decades since only handful of people had been able to see the wreck, which lies in two pieces. So they did allow a pair of divers to make their way down to the ship in 1995. And then the same year, a crew with help from the Canadian Navy and the National Geographic Society, Sony and the, the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of the Chippewa Indians retrieved the ship's bell at the behest of the families of those who were lost. As the bell broke the surface, it let out a distinct chime that was heard by all there. The Canadian government has since prohibited access to the site. A replica bell engraved with the names of the 29 sailors who lost their lives replaced the original on the wreck. So they went back down with the mm -hmm. replica. There is an annual memorial that is held. The annual Edmund Fitzgerald Memorial Ceremony takes place on November 10th at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum at Whitefish Point. The recovered and restored bell will toll 29 times for each member of the Fitzgerald's crew and a 30th for the estimated 30,000 mariners lost on the Great Lakes. 30,000 mariners. Wow. That's crazy. In 2020, this event was held virtually due to the COVID-19 virus. There was a coin that was made by the Royal Canadian Mint to commemorate the Edmund Fitzgerald in 2015 with a colored silver coin collection. And it was at face value about $20. Yeah, because we're, uh, the 2015 would have been 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there is the Gordon Lightfoot song, which everybody, well, maybe not everybody, most people, most people know, know it. of or have heard of, for sure. Yeah. I think it's an amazing song. I do, too. And it, it's long yeah. because there's a lot to say, <laughs> but it's a really good song. Mm -hmm. He released 10 albums from 1966 to 1975 and was inspired to write the ballad, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, after reading an article about the tragedy in Newsweek. He included the song on his 1976 album, Summertime Dream, and the nearly six-minute single reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100 charts for that year and became Lightfoot's second most successful hit. We will end this disaster with the song of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot. And that is the end of part two of the SS for Edmund survivors of the Edmund Fitzgerald, a 729-foot ore carrier, which apparently broke apart and sunk last night on Lake Superior. The ship and its 29-man crew vanished in a storm with 80-mile-an-hour winds and wave heights up to 25 feet. All that has been found is an oil slick and some debris. <laughs> Legend lives on from the Chippewan down up the big lake they call Get Sugar Mid. The lake it is said never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With the load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the headland of Fitzgerald weighed empty. Big ship and true was a bunged a bit when the gales of November gave her lay. The 
ship was the pride of the American side Coming back from some mill in Wisconsin As the big breeders go, it was bigger than most With the growing good Captain Wellsies and Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms When they left only loaded with Cleveland Later that night when the ship's bell rang Could it be the north wind they'd been feeling?
Of the theories, mm-hmm. what one do you think happened? I think it was topside damage. Yeah. I think, think maybe there was, I mean, I think it was, it was one of those boarding seas brought something, whether it was a log or something that maybe punched a hole towards mm-hmm. the top that like yeah. I said that Mick Sorley couldn't see. Yeah. And that maybe started, maybe punched a hole in one of the ballast tanks. So you think it was more of a, something like that and not necessarily just the overwashing of wave after wave after wave i mean there was already damage obviously before that even happened right i think it could be both and that's kind of what i was getting like a combination yeah and as it got lower in the water the water got heavier and heavier i think it was kind of a combination because you you were hearing reports of damage even before the wreck happened Mm -hmm. it just seemed to progressively be getting worse right worse and worse what initially started the damage yeah that's what I mean. I think maybe what had happened is that there was some type of debris. And the, some, I even read somewhere that some, like it could have been a, a shipping crate that fell off another ship and that the, a wave just took it and bashed it into the side of the ship and put a hole in it. Well, there is one theory. I'm pretty confident we can kick out the door. And I don't think you're, you discussed that theory is that aliens did it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> aliens do everything. It was the aliens. It was the aliens. No, aliens did not do this. Um, so we could definitely kick that out the door. I just love it whenever anything <laughs> is unex- can't be explained. People are always like, oh, it's aliens. No. It's just... Not in this case. Yeah. It, it, it's just like with science, it's one of those things where you can't always kick it to aliens. Or... Yeah. I mean, given the water and the storm, it would be logical to think that there would be shit in the water. It'd be logical sure. to think that, that a wave could have taken something and slammed it into the side of that ship and Hell, those put a were, hole in it. Those those waves were strong enough where they could have been even picking up, you know, like small bowling ball sized or a little right. bit bigger sized rocks from the bottom of the, right. the lake and yeah. just pitching and pelting, you know, that ship. And but, it's also possible that if if there was damage to because one of the things i noticed and one of the reasons why i put in you know the little mishaps it had seemed like there was two that damaged the damaged it at hatch 18 and hatch 18 is where it split so you know it's mm. possible the cumulative effect of the prior Whatever damage happened. at, at mm. that hatch and the water hitting just mm. and it is entirely believable too that the hatch covers may have been degraded yep that water could have been coming in through and it's also well, that both the NTSB and the Coast Guard are correct. 
in the sense that mm -hmm. I, I don't believe that McSorley or anyone would have left without the hatch covers properly dogged. I think more likely what yeah. happened is that they were deteriorated and that the water coming over could have done what the NTSB said and just collapsed some of those hatches. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I do also think because again, that, that wouldn't have created the list. I also do think that, like I said, something hit that ship that caused it to list. Yeah. So I think it was a combination of both things. And we're for sure that it went down fast. Yeah. Whatever, whatever. I mean, it was, con it, yeah, it was continuously getting worse, but it wasn't like it just slowly went down. Right. Because if they would have had, they would have had a chance to launch the lifeboats and, you know, get yeah. in their gear and, and get off the boat. If, even if they would have had two minutes warning, mm -hmm. they would have still had enough time. I mean, we had people who survived with two minutes warning mm -hmm. on a previous one there is that, that right. pretty good chance that they would have been able to get away if it would have been a slower effect. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it happened so quickly. No even start of a mayday. Yeah. I mean, exactly. and the fact that the, you know, the door was open makes me wonder if somebody saw this wall of water crashing toward them and went kind of running out the door and that was yeah that or opened the door. And that was that just had no chance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Whatever happened, they had no chance. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we we just did pass the anniversary not very long ago um, again. Mm -hmm. um, what was this, the 41st anniversary? No, 46. No, 46. 47? 46. 40. No, you're right, 46. 46. So we're near, we're, we're close to, near to half a century from, hard to believe, from this thing sinking and yeah. no closer to understanding what happened. Yeah. And probably never will be. And like you said, even if somebody, you know, was to, to go down there, get permission to go down, I still don't think it would be. Yeah, I'm not entirely um, sure that diving on the wreck at this point would would uh, yield any more answers. Yeah, no. Nope. It's sad, but unfortunately, it's, I mean, fortunate is it's the last big one that's happened on mm -hmm. the lake. The unfortunate thing is, is that it might not be the last one to happen on the lake. Yeah, I mean, part of me wonders if part of the reason why it's the last big one is not necessarily because everything's gotten as safe, but just that there's fewer. Yeah. Because a lot of the, man, yep. you know, a lot of the manufacturing and a lot of the no longer exists. And so there's just fewer ships plying the lakes now. Yep. And so it's just, you know, the probability there's, there's probably going to be fewer ships out in November. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully it's, you know, better tracking and mm -hmm. knowing better the weather and mm -hmm. things like that. All that has moved forward in technology. So there's a chance that, you know, yeah. even that plays into it. But I won't give it to the companies that are running these ships yeah. because you, I, I don't trust I mean, them. these ships I mean, can, you know, they can last years. I mean, Arthur Anderson is still sailing. If they're taken care of. Yeah, you know, exactly. If they're invested in. And that's yeah. why, that's why. <laughs> The Fitzgerald only being 18 and then sinking, and then the Homer being scra scrapped after, you know, 20 years, 30 years is, you know, that does maybe get into some of the possible. It kind of got a little suspicious there too when they would not let the Coast Guard go on the ship. The NTSB, yeah, 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 the the NTSB, they wouldn't let them go on to take mm -hmm. a ride, and it's like, well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what are they gonna find? Are you right. afraid they're gonna find something? And then not not long after that, they yanked it off the lake. And then they and they paid all this money to lengthen it, only to mm -hmm. scrap it. Only to scrap it. So it kind of, eh, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it makes you think. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
But all right, well, we're going to go ahead and bring this one to an end, everybody. I hope everybody enjoyed it. We did have a couple times where we had some technical difficulties, although nobody heard it because the beauty of editing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so you guys didn't hear the technical difficulties, but we managed to, uh, to f- I think, hopefully, fingers crossed, fix it all. And oh, God, if we had to redo this one, because um, <laughs> this was a long one um, and a good one, too. So uh-huh. I wouldn't have I, I wouldn't want to redo it. So I think it was it came out good. But we're going to go ahead and bring this one to an end. Mel, it was a pleasure. Our, yes. our next episode is again, it's a listener episode that has been requested. So we're going to do that one. Looking forward to it. And uh, we're going to get that one in place. And then we are going to jump back on our list. And we got some good ones. We got some really good ones. Mm-hmm. Even even our listener requests is a good one. They're all good ones coming up. So, I mean, they're always good ones in my opinion. But, you know. <laughs> and even if I'm like, I'm not really excited about the ones I get into the research, I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah, I and know. I get into it, you know. So, <laughs> all right. Well, Mel, pleasure. And everybody, we look forward to uh, getting you the next one. Um, next one's going to be me and Andy. So, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye. You can contact us at thecornfieldmeat at gmail.com, on Facebook and Instagram at thecornfieldmeat, on Twitter at cornfieldmeat, Our phone number where you can leave us a voicemail is 803-900-5252. And our Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash thecornfieldmeat. You can support us by making a review on iTunes, Podcast, or CastBox. We are available on other platforms such as Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, tune in and many more these episodes are researched by michelle and mel they are directed recorded edited and posted by michelle we thank you for joining us on this journey buckle up travel safe and remember never try to outrun a train